And turn with me to Luke 18 as you're finding your place there. I just want to commend you as a church for uh, moving to two services, and it's been a great blessing. Uh, last week, uh, we had strong attendance in the first and second service. Same was true today, and uh, it's just tremendous to be able to have more seats open so that we can continue to reach more people in Powhatan and the surrounding area. And so uh, that's what this is all about, accommodating uh, ourselves as a church so that we can uh, further reach the people that God is bringing to us. And so last week, our, our attendance was up tremendously. We were at 267. We have been in that 235, 240 range for the last uh, couple months. And so to be able to jump up, you know, 30 or 20 people or whatever uh, is really, really strong. And it's going to climb even from there. So thank you, church, for doing that and for uh, just your continued commitment to the gospel and putting. Uh, opportunities out there as much as possible for people to sit under the gospel. So this morning, I, I want to kind of talk about that. And the subject is entitled, or the sermon's entitled, Kingdom Recipients. What does it mean to be a citizen, a, a, a member of the kingdom? How, how do you receive that into your life? That's what we're going to be talking this morning about in uh, the passage just before us here in Luke chapter 18. But if you are paying attention at all, you know that millions of people are immigrating to the United States each year. In fact, according to the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection data that they have released, federal agents encountered roughly 2.5 million migrants at our southern border just last year. Now, that figure encapsulates all of those who were captured, all of those who were uh, stopped and processed there at the border. What it doesn't include is all of those who are considered now Godaways, and so the people who were never stopped, never processed, never uh, contacted as they crossed over the border, and so that number they're estimating also into the millions. Then you add to that the migrants in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who are lawfully immigrating to the United States each and every year. And so what we are, are confronted with, and that's probably not even the right choice of terms, but what we see is that America is, as it's always been, a nation of immigrants. We are a nation that is made up of immigrants. Uh, all of our ancestors, if, unless you're a Native American, came from somewhere outside of the continental United States. So we are a nation of immigrants, and that is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that we're immigrants. And so when you think about why people are coming here, why they would go to great risk, go to great expense to come to this nation, we have to ask the question, what is it that attracts people to the United States of America. And I believe the answer is simply boils down to three things. They're seeking freedom, they're seeking prosperity, and they are seeking safety. And when you think about uh, experiencing those things, the freedoms, the prosperity opportunities, the safety that's afforded here in this great nation, we need to understand that to experience all of that to its nth degree 
It's going to require full integration within our culture, within our society, through citizenship. And I did some research on this this past week, and I came up with some information from the federal government's website on naturalization, and it lists out seven different benefits of citizenship. And some of these are kind of simple. Some of these you probably have thought of, but some of them are uh, things that I never actually thought of before. But they listed seven things. Here's number one, voting. One of the benefits of being a citizen of this nation is you have an opportunity to vote, have a say in the direction of our country. Number two, bringing family members into the United <laughs> States. Number three, obtaining citizenship for children who are born abroad. Number four, traveling with a United States passport, which is a blessing, as you know, if you've traveled abroad. Number five, becoming eligible for federal jobs. Number six, becoming an elected official. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but that's an opportunity that's out there if you're a citizen of this nation. Number seven, showing your patriotism. So these are just some of the benefits that this federal government lays out when it comes to citizenship. And the way to become a recipient of these benefits is that you're, you're going to have to do certain things. You, you're going to have to buy in and go through some requirements in order to obtain and to live out and experience the benefits of citizenship. And they went on to list some of the requirements. Number one, give up all prior allegiance to any other nation or sovereignty. So if you're coming from the UK, no longer are you bowing down to the king, you are showing allegiance to the United States of America. Number two, swearing allegiance to the United States. Number three, support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States. And then number four, the requirement to serve the country when required. Now, we haven't had a draft in decades, but that's always out there. That's part of being a citizen of this nation. So when we think about citizenship and we think about the benefits that come with citizenship, though that concept is not unique to America. It's not unique even to the modern world. In fact, we find citizenship all throughout history, and we find citizenship even in the Bible. You think of the Apostle Paul, he's in Jerusalem, there on the back end of his life, the back end of his ministry, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, he had come there knowing that something bad was going to happen, God had already tipped him off through prophets, he gets to Jerusalem, and he's arrested, and he's brought into the Roman Tribune's quarters. And there that Roman official uh, made, gave the order that he was to be uh, um, basically talked to or, or, or assessed through flogging. They were to examine him through flogging. And just before he was to be flogged, just before he was to be beaten, Paul asked the question, is it lawful for a Roman citizen, an uncondemned Roman citizen to be flogged? And so that threw the whole thing into a tizzy and the, the man went into the Roman official and asked the question. And so we see there in the Bible this concept of citizenship and what it meant to be a citizen. Paul was born a citizen of Rome. The Roman tribune that he stood before had purchased his citizenship, but both enjoyed the same rights that came with being a citizen of the empire of Rome. And so this morning, as we come to our next passage here in Luke chapter 18, we're going to see this passage address the way in which a person becomes a kingdom citizen. So if you got your Bible there, let's begin reading in verse 9. Luke tells us that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's what Jesus said. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, verse 13, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Last week as we were working through the parable there, the first eight verses of chapter 18, we saw that persistent prayer reveals what we believe about God. This morning, as we look at this next parable, and we see these two contrasting prayers that are offered, it reveals to us what we think about ourselves, how we think about ourselves, what we think about ourselves. So we learn from this passage that there is a right and a proper way to enter the kingdom of God. Because, as we're going to see, there's no way that we can make up our own laws or develop our own procedure as it pertains to entry into the kingdom of God. See, the only way to become a recipient of the kingdom is to enter on God's terms. And the only way to become a citizen of this nation, if you think about it, is to enter through the processes that are laid out in the law of this land. So when we think about entry into the kingdom of God, it's going to require humility. It's going to require us humbling ourselves before the Lord. And that's what these verses before us talk about. They tell us about what it means to be a kingdom recipient. There's four requirements, and I want them... I want to show you them this morning. First of all, kingdom recipients know their own sin. And think about that. Kingdom recipients, those who are members, citizens of the kingdom, what we're seeing here in this parable is that they know their own sin. Luke clues us in to what's going on here in verse 9 when he tells us that as Jesus is telling this parable, the reason he's telling it is because there were people there, men, women, children perhaps, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. You see, these men believed that their own observance of the law positioned them in a right standing with God. It was their ability to faithfully follow the mandates laid out by Moses and, and the teachings of the rabbis that blinded them to their own sin. And so rather than seeing and acknowledging their sinfulness before God, they only saw their righteousness. They could only see how good they were. They could only see how well they followed the law or followed the teachings of the rabbis. They were blinded to their sin. But Jesus here teaches us that those who are kingdom recipients know their own sin. Recognizing their spiritual blindness, Jesus went on to teach a parable. And this parable contrasts two men's two men and their two prayers. The people who trusted in themselves in the crowd are represented by the Pharisee that's in the parable. Now, Pharisees, as you probably know, had earned the reputation, according to the great historian Josephus, Josephus they had earned the reputation of being a body of Jews known for their uh, interpretation of the laws and their observance of piety. I mean, they were the elite of the elite. They were the spiritual seal team six of Jerusalem. They were the ones who were the conservatives of their day. Everyone looked to the Pharisees and knew that they were walking with God because they were so pious in their spirituality. 
On the other hand, the tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society. These enforcers of the Roman tax system literally preyed upon their own brethren. They, they were religious and political traitors to Hebrew society. So if we think about Jewish tax collectors and we try to relate that to our day, the, really the only modern equivalent would be drug dealers and pimps. Those who would profit off the bodies of others, those who would... Who would uh, uh, sell others into sex slavery, those who would do anything they could to earn a dollar and stealing from someone else. And so the tax collector represents those who know their own sin. Pharisees saw their righteousness. The tax collector saw his sinfulness. This Pharisee believed himself to be a recipient of the kingdom, which is evident by his position as well as his disposition. So let me just share three things about this with you. First, we see that he saw himself as a recipient of the kingdom because he's standing in the place of prominence. Look at verse 11. This Pharisee comes in and he stands in a place of prominence, which when we contrast it with what we see in verse 13, it gives us the picture that this Pharisee moved to the front of the court of Israel within the temple precincts. So it's as if this man came in at the hour of prayer, he moved up into the court of Israel all the way to the front, right in front of the altar of the burnt offering. He stands up so everybody can see the phylacteries on his body, see his spirituality, and he begins to pray. All of it is for a show. Positions himself in a place of prominence. Second, we know he's a believer that he's in the kingdom because his prayer is self-absorbed, which is evident by the five uses of the personal pronoun I. Over and over again, he says I, 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 I. See, in essence, this man is congratulating himself for how well he's lived the law, how well he's served the Lord. He, in essence, he's telling God how blessed he is that he's a part of the kingdom. Have you ever met someone like that? They're a joy to be around, let me tell you. They're just a ball of joy. They think they're the best thing since sliced bread. You guys are awake today? I need to come up with a better joke, I guess, but I'm not getting much from you this morning. I don't know what that meant. I don't know if that's a knock against me or a knock against you, but uh, we'll take it whichever way you want. Here's a man who is all about himself thought he was in the kingdom. We also think, know that he thought he was in the kingdom because he highlights his righteousness. The Pharisee looks down on those who are sinners. In verse 11, he begins to say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like the extortioner. I'm not the, like the unjust. I'm not like the adulterer. I'm not even like that sorry tax collector who's in the back of this court. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Can you imagine in your prayer time? Can you imagine in your time of worship? Can you imagine in a worship setting like this, you coming down to the front and standing before the Lord and standing before the Lord's people and begin to highlight your own righteousness? His disposition reveals that rather than being a lover of God, he was a lover of himself. He was oblivious to his own sin. And yet, what does the Bible make it very clear to us? That all of us are sinners. Paul's words in Romans 3 are as true today as they were when he wrote them in the first century. That there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And by contrast, the tax collector here recognizes his sin. Look what he says in verse 13. Standing far off, not even lifting up his eyes to heaven, he beats his breast. He calls out for mercy from God. This man knew that he was a sinner. 
He knew he's a sinner, so feeling unworthy in his sin, he stands at the back. He positions himself in a place of humility. He, he does not, he refuses to lift his eyes. Instead, he bows himself before the Lord. He laments over his sin. And what does Jesus say about this man? He was justified. This man was made right with God, not because of who he was, not because of what he had accomplished, not because of what degree he held, not because of a job or a position he held, none of those things. This man was deemed righteous because of how he positioned himself before the Lord. Humility. He recognized his sinfulness and humbled himself before the Lord. Kingdom recipients know their own sin. It's the second thing we see. Kingdom recipients weigh themselves only against Jesus. Luke clues us in here of why this parable was told, and that is because some did not see the need for Jesus, and they looked down on others. He says, they treated others with contempt. And so as this man prayed, he thanked the Lord that he was not like the other men. He says, God, I'm glad I'm not an extortioner. I'm glad I'm not unjust. I'm glad I'm not an adulterer. I'm glad I'm not like that sorry tax collector. And was this man wrong in saying that? He wasn't an extortioner. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't an adulterer. He wasn't the tax collector. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious man. He's a spiritual man. He's a man who stands for justice. He's a man who stood for truth. He's a man who taught the people. He was good from a worldly perspective. Everything that the person would see in his life, they would say, this man knows God, loves God, follows God, pursues God. He is a right, good, godly man. And the problem is, as this man is laying out his argument for his own righteousness, he fails to compare himself to someone who is greater. He says, I'm glad I'm not like other men. He picked out the worst of the worst for comparison. And who wouldn't look good in such a group? I mean, any of us, if we stood up against an extortion or unjust person in adulterer or a tax collector in that day, we would look pretty good. But when we stand before the Lord, we don't stand in a group and we're not judged based upon how well we do within that group. We stand before one, and that one is holy. When we come before Jesus, it's not like an American Idol during Hollywood week where we're in a group, and one gets to stand, step forward, and the other stays back, and Jesus just says, hey, if you're on the back row, welcome to the kingdom. You're on the front row. It's the end of the journey for you. No, that's not the case at all. When we stand before the Lord, it's you and you alone. And you're being judged not based upon how you compare with someone else. You're being judged based upon how you compare to Jesus himself. Entry into the kingdom is a personal evaluation of what you've done with the gospel. What you've done with Jesus Christ. It's a comparison of the individual to the Lord. And so the command of God to every person is what? In Leviticus, it's the same as what we see in 1 Peter. It is to be holy because God is holy. That is the standard. God himself is the standard by which we are judged. Paul makes it clear again that all sin and fall short of that standard, fall short of the glory of God. So we dare not to make ourselves look any better than we are by comparing ourselves to others. We need to look at ourselves and compare it to Jesus Christ. He is the standard. He's holy. And before we think that we have measured up to that, let me reiterate what I've already said multiple times. We'll all have sinned and fall short you fall short which means you don't measure up it means you don't be, meet the benchmark holiness is the standard and you are not holy 
We don't just miss the standard. We woefully miss the standard of God's righteousness. So that's the Pharisee. Now, the tax collector is justified by God because he compares himself only to the Lord. He recognized how far short he fell of the standard. So for us today, we need to remember that kingdom recipients weigh themselves only against Jesus Christ. There's a third thing. Kingdom recipients ask for mercy. What is it that we do not see in this text when it re- as it refers to the Pharisee? You read through the whole parable. You read through the whole uh, description of this man and what he does before the Lord there in that temple area. What do we not see? He never asked for mercy. Not one time does the Pharisee come in and say, Father, forgive me I've sinned. Father, forgive me that I've done wrong. Father, forgive me I didn't measure up. No, instead, this man comes before the Lord, and what does he do? He offers up his spiritual resume. God, I'm glad I'm not like other men. I'm not like that sorry extortioner. I'm not like that sorry unjust person. I'm not an adulterer who's running around on my wife. I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector who's stealing from your people. I'm not like any of these. In fact, God, I'm so good. Look at me. I fast twice a week. They were only required by the law to fast once a year. But he's fasting twice a week. He says, Father, look at my resume. Look what I do for you. I give all. I tithe of all the things that I have. Not just my income. I tithe of everything. You know, I tie the minuscule things, the mint and the deal and the things that I get from my garden. I'm tithing those. Look at me. Look at my resume. This man makes sure that the Lord knew how great he was. Now, outwardly, he's not lying again. He's not any of those things. He looked good to a watching world. Now, conversely, you think about the tax collector. Who is he? He is the extortioner. He is the unjust man. He is the adulterer because he's adulterating his faith. He's a Jew, but he's stealing from his brothers. He is everything that's wrong in the world. And the watching world would have known it. And yet as the tax collector stood before the Lord and as he came under deep conviction of his sin through the gospel, he asked for mercy. The Pharisee never asked for mercy. The tax collector begged for mercy. So the grand difference between these two men and their dispositions was that the Pharisee stood before the Lord in his own righteousness. Look what I've done while the tax collector stands before the Lord in humility, bowing his head, prostrating himself before the Lord and expresses his need for righteousness. For this reason, the tax collector was justified by God. Why? Because he asked for mercy. He pleaded for God for it. So here we're reminded what Paul says in Romans 10. Whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you become a Christian? You ask. You ask. Father, would you forgive me? Father, I believe that you've sent your son. I believe that Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection has fully paid the penalty for my sin. I believe he became righteousness for me. He who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. Father, I believe that for myself. I'm asking you to forgive my sin. I'm asking you to be gracious toward me, to be merciful toward me. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you receive the kingdom into your life. We dare not ever stand before the Lord and say, Father, look what I've done for you. Come to church, 
I've shared the gospel. I've been on mission trips. I've given lots of money. I've attended Sunday school. I've got all these badges. I don't, we don't do it anymore. But back in the day, years ago, you could get badges, and people would have these long pins in Southern Baptist life. Some of you are shaking your heads because you had this, this litany of like, look how wonderful I am as a Christian. I never miss church. I wonder how many people who have long lines of pins and ribbons and all that stuff are in hell today. Because that's the spiritual resume. Nothing wrong with the pins and ribbons. I'm all for church attendance. I think you should be here every single Sunday. Go figure on that one. But that's just me. I'm crazy. <clears throat> this man's background did nothing with the Lord. Guy comes in and he begins to spout his spiritual resume. And all the Lord sees is you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. You're a sinner in need of my righteousness. The tax collector comes in and says, God, look what I've done. I am sinful. I am awful. I am horrible. I recognize this. And God sees that and God hears that. And all he says is, you're a sinner in need of my righteousness. You're a sinner in need of my forgiveness. Both men are in the same place spiritually. Both people are in the both have the same needs. And Jesus is there available, ready to give the forgiveness, to give the grace, to grant the mercy. One asks, but the other does not kingdom recipients ask for mercy and asking requires humility there's a fourth thing i want you to see and that is kingdom recipients exercise simple faith verse 14 here ends with the picture of the humble tax collector being exalted by christ jesus says whoever humbles himself will be exalted right he who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This theme of humility carries on into the next three verses where Jesus is met by some parents as he's teaching, as he's talking about the kingdom. These parents begin to bring their children, infants and older children to him. It's sort of like a baby dedication thing, maybe. Like they wanted their child to be in the presence of Jesus. Maybe have Jesus touch them, to bless them, to pray over them. And so this is a big deal for them. And so they're bringing their kids. Well, the disciples, they don't understand this. And Luke tells us that they begin to rebuke the parents. Like, nah, get your kids out of here. We, we don't need any kids. Jesus ain't got time for them. We, we got another show to get to. They're, they're trying to keep up with his schedule and his agenda. And so they tell these parents and their kids to take a hike. Well, Jesus basically rebukes them. And he tells them not to prevent the children from coming to him. And then he says something interesting. For such belongs the kingdom of God. What? Kingdom? Children? How does that even compute? In this day, in this culture, children were not regarded with, with much renown. We didn't, they didn't think much about kids. Kids were kind of a nuisance. They weren't like us in today's culture in America where we over-prioritize our kids to a great degree, right? It was the exact opposite. And so what, what we see here is that as Jesus is making this statement not to prevent the children from coming to him and that the kingdom belongs to him, what we're seeing here is a further demonstration of Jesus reaching the least of these, that no one is beyond his reach. No one is beyond his acceptance. And then he stated that the kingdom belongs to this kind of person it belongs to a child now we can't help but wonder about this statement what do you mean it belongs to a child sure i see that it's the least of these i see that it's a person that's not necessarily a priority in the culture in which we live but is there something else i believe there is contextually i think we need to understand this concept of helplessness now ontologically the great distinctive of an infant 
and to a lesser degree, older children. As they age up, they become a little bit more dependent each and every year. And so this distinctive of an infant is helplessness. Helplessness. I told the first service that right now we've got like four or five ladies in our church who are pregnant, because, which is a good thing. It's always good to have babies. We've kind of graduated a lot of our kids out of our nursery, and so we need to replenish that thing. And so let me just tell you, I am grateful to God that we as a church take Genesis seriously when it says be fruitful multiply and fill the earth and so let's continue to to do that because that is a good thing so what do we know when a baby is born so you families who are sitting here who are about to have a newborn baby whether it's your first or your third or fourth here's what you probably understand this infant is going to be incredibly and totally helpless I want you to picture that day. I remember all three of our girls when they were born and what went on there. We're in the labor room, and it's chaos and crazy, and people running back and forth. You pull this baby out, and it's covered in this gooey, ooey, nasty stuff. And, and you're like, I don't know if I want to touch that. But, you know, they put it up on the tray. They're going to weigh it, which is an interesting thing. And so when that baby's put on that tray, whatever it is, you got these hands that go up in the air. You got feet that go up in the air, and they're all pointing to the ceiling. And the whole thing just screams helpless. Because if nurses weren't there, and a doctor wasn't there, and parents weren't there, and, and, and just other human beings in general, what would happen to that baby if it was left on that tray? Would die. Helpless. If someone doesn't act on behalf of that child, that child will not live. It needs a mama to to, to have nourishment, right? It needs clothes to stay warm. It needs a bed to sleep in. It needs walls to protect it from those who would kill it. Because if you were out in the woods and that baby was born with nothing to protect it, what happens? Nature takes over. Now, we're getting into some graphic weeds here, but I just want to kind of paint the picture of complete and utter helplessness when it comes to a newborn baby. It's the profile of helplessness. And it continues on into childhood. It extends for years. No child can survive its early years without the help of others. Children here then learn to trust others for everything. They trust for food. They trust for lodging. They trust for protection. They trust for education. They trust for transportation. Everything in their life is all about trust. That's why we as parents have to warn our children that there are some people who are not trustworthy, right? Don't go to the scary white van that's sitting at the end of the road. I thought that would get a joke or a laugh. Maybe that's van sitting to your neighborhood. It's a little too close for you. I'm not sure. Uh, So we try to teach our kids to not be so trusting to certain people because you want to protect them. But children have this natural tendency to trust. That's what Jesus is driving at here. Kingdom recipients exercise simple faith. Every child born into this world is absolutely and completely helpless. And the same is true of every person who would be born into the kingdom of God. See, to be a recipient of the kingdom requires that you enter it helplessly. Here's a man who stands before the Lord of the spiritual resume. Look what I've done for you. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 when he says that there's coming a day when people will stand stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And they list the litany of things they've done for the Lord. And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. 
What do you mean you didn't know me? Look at all the things that I've done for you. I've even casted out demons in your name. That's what Jesus uses as an example. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. It doesn't matter what you do religiously. It doesn't matter what you do in the church. It doesn't matter the hoops you jump to, the, the badges that you wear, the degrees that you have. None of that matters. It all comes down to whether or not you have humbled yourself and with simple trust, childlike faith, said yes to Jesus. That's what Jesus is driving at here. Is these people trusted in their own righteousness and treated others with contempt. This is going to require humility. Kids are humble. The state of an infant is helpless and humble. I mean, think about kids with me a little bit further for a moment. Little children are not too proud for mom and dad to change their dirty diapers. Like, you go to your baby, a little six-month-old, that little baby, if she, he, she or he could talk, would not re- look up at you and say, Dad, I don't want you to do this today. I'm a little embarrassed. No, they want to get that nasty thing off. You get up a little older where they can walk around, and, and they'll come at you and pull your shirt tail, and that thing's hanging down between their legs. They want it to get off. They're not too proud. I've had three kids. I know all about that. They're not too proud. They're not too proud to be held and to be fed. They're not too proud to be washed and to be dressed. Why? Because they're helpless. And so they trust mom and dad to care for them. But here's the way we want to approach the Lord. God, I I don't want you to clean me up. I want to clean myself up. God, I, I, I don't want you to take care of that in my life. I want you to forgive. I want to, I want to take it into heaven, but I, I want to come on my own merits. I want to pull my, myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. I, I want to do things in my own power. But God over and over again in his word tells us that we have to recognize that we are sinful. That we need to compare ourselves only to Jesus Christ because he's the standard of holiness. We must ask, cry out for mercy and grace in our lives because we desperately need it. And we need with simple faith, trust in Jesus to do the work and not do it ourselves. That's the gospel message. That's the message to every person in their sin who would say, I am sufficient in and of myself. Kingdom recipients exercise simple faith in Jesus. They humbly trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all for the forgiveness of their sins and the newness of life. This tax collector was justified because he exercised simple faith. Today, across our country, we see all kinds of people migrating into the country every year. What are they doing? They're looking for a better life. That's what they're doing. They're looking for a better life. They came to this great nation seeking freedom. They came here to seek prosperity. They came here to seek safety. They understand the blessings that come with being an American citizen. Now, this is not a political statement at all, but I don't know how many of them are actually thinking long-term down the road to become citizens because that's problematic when you cross illegally. But let's just say they come here with a mindset of, we want everything that America has to offer. How do you get everything that America has to offer? You come in the right way. And today we think about the kingdom of God and we think about the promises that God's given us about the kingdom of what that means in our life with eternal life and, and, and a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and, and just the fact, that the, the fact that we've been made by God and for God. And when we come into a relationship with God, that is brought back into place. The brokenness that's there because of our sin has been remade through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that hole in our life, that void that's there because of our sin has now been filled with Jesus Christ, that 
God-shaped hole has been filled with God himself. And that changes us. And when we think about all of that and how we receive that, we dare not come to the kingdom of God thinking that we're going to make our own way. No, you come through the door that's there. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the door. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we don't come to Jesus in another religion. We don't come to Jesus through Muhammad or Krishna. We don't come to Jesus through the teachings of Hinduism or Buddhism or any other ism that's out there. We don't come to Jesus and experience all that he wants to give us with our self-righteousness and our good works and our good efforts and our best effort. None of those things matter because when we stand before Jesus, the standard is his holiness and we woefully fall short and that's when we cry out Lord forgive me a sinner have mercy on me and what Jesus said of this man is true of us he was justified you will be justified made right the wrongs that you have against or or the, the the indictments that you have in your life and in your walk against God are forgiven, removed, moved out of the way. You are forgiven completely, pardoned by the holy of holies. And so the only way to become a recipient of the kingdom is to enter on God's terms. And that's going to require humility. But when we humble ourselves, he exalts. What does he exalt us to? Sonship. Now it would be one thing for God to let us in the kingdom and we just get to be slaves in the kingdom. We just get to sweep the streets of heaven. Wouldn't that be good enough? Right? Wouldn't that be good enough? You think of the the, the parable of the prodigal son that we dealt with back in chapter 15. That that son comes to the end of himself and he says, Man, the, the servants in my father's house have it better than I do here in my sin. I will return and I hope to God that my father will let me be a servant. That was his desire. And that would have been enough for him. But what happens when he returns? The son gets to the father's house, and the father runs to meet the son. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. Forgive me. Just make me a servant in your house. But instead, the father calls for a servant and says, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring the fattened calf. Tonight we're partying and we're celebrating because my son who was dead is alive. My son who was now gone is come back. The exaltation is sonship. The exaltation is family. The exaltation is the fact that you are now a child of God. You're back where you were supposed to be from the very beginning. You are God's special, anointed, blessed creation. His favor rests upon you. Amen? Amen. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. That's what it means to come to the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We just acknowledge that we have absolutely nothing to offer. Everything has been tainted by the sin that we bear. All of our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. Blood-stained, soaked rags. It's filthy. So, God, we offer nothing to you because we have nothing to offer. But, Lord, that's the best place to be. And so I thank you for the picture that we've seen in this parable this morning of this tax collector who just simply comes before you in the temple. 
bears his heart and bears his soul, humbles himself, pleads his case, just falls on the mercy of God. And in that moment, he is justified. God, across this room, many of us could bear testimony of that. That we're a child of God today, not because of a pedigree, not because of a last name, not because of a church we grew up in, not because of how many Bible verses we knew, not because of how many mission trips we went on. None of those things mattered at all. But today our name is written in heaven because there was a moment where we humbled ourselves and like a young child just simply trusted in Jesus. So we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you'd help us as Christians to cherish that, to relish in that. Lord, to lean into that. And because of the, this incredible, amazing grace that we've experienced, want to share that with others. In our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our schools. God, help us to be passionate about the gospel that has so transformed our lives. I pray for those sitting in this room today that need a relationship with Jesus. God, someone watching us online right now that, Lord, the greatest need in their life is not more religion, goodness. They don't need more of that. They need Jesus. And so I pray that they would be like a tax collector and humble themselves before the Lord, call out, cry out, ask for mercy, own their sin, understand that they only stand before you and you alone, only judged by your standard. And with simple faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the appeal this morning. So as we move into a time of invitation, may your spirit lead. May your spirit help us to follow. And God, I pray that whatever you put in our hearts, the answer would be yes. This is what we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.